Take a knee, take a seat, grab a brew, and listen in. This is the Reorg Podcast. And here we are for episode 18 of The Real Podcast. This episode guest is a friend of mine, an ex-fusilier, and more recently, a quite a distinguished poet. Uh, his name's Neville Johnson. He served in Northern Ireland, Iraq twice, and his last tour being Sangin in 2007. Neville, Neville actually left in 2010 to pursue a career in CP, which is quite quite similar to a lot of people and when you know the path they choose when they leave the military especially you know the infantry and similar he now lives in New Zealand with his wife and kids and he actually works with uh, at-risk children but throughout the episode we talk about how each tour was different for him mentally you know and how it was for him coming over from South Africa into a you know foreign country and how that was and the whole experience we also go into what, you know what what's what's helped him come over dark times that he's these facing coming out of the military and things like these his poetry which is in the uh, he's actually published poet in the the dead reckoning collective and the veterans collective so what i'll do is as always i'll put links in in, in the description etc but yeah, here it is, episode 18, and I hope you enjoy. Right, uh, here we are finally for episode 18. It's been a, it's been a little while because of all these lockdowns in the UK. Uh, but I'm here with Neville, Neville Johnson. If you just want to give an introduction, mate, about, about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, and why you joined the army. Well, let, let, let's before you say why you joined the army, let's just go where you're from and where you grew up and all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm um, sure. Um... I grew up in, in South Africa. I was born and raised in, in South Africa. Um, I left the country, it was in 2000, that I, I thought no, um, it was time to go and pursue something else. Because um, I, I just wasn't happy with being stuck in a, in a small town. And I just thought I had this desire to go and um, just explore and travel. And um, it was in 2000. I went over to, it was in, I think, July. I went over to the UK. Initially, um, it was a... On a working visa, um, I went up to, I think it was in um, Egypt. Um, I worked in a food factory and um, it was in, I was there for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two. And I went down to Oxford. I, I worked there um, as a barman and I went back to London and I worked there as a personal trainer in a faster hotel in Knightsbridge. Mm-hmm. And I realized my, but my, my visa was running out and I thought no, I wanted to stay within the UK and um, someone said try the police force I, and that's something I wanted to do as a kid to follow my dad's footsteps because he was an ex-police officer mm-hmm. I did work out, um, in South Africa and then I tried to join the British uh, police force. It didn't work out because over there you had to, um, they wouldn't help you with your um, visa requirements. And um, so I thought it's not going to work. And someone said, "Go join um, the British Army." Um, so I thought, "Yeah, why not?" You know. And um, it was—I think it was at, in, in the Strand. I walked into a, a recruiting office there, 
and I'm pretty sure that uh, the person that said they was um, in a Fusiliers because he gave me three options, either the Fusiliers or the Parachute Regiment or I think it was the Engineer Regiment. And yeah, so uh, the Fusiliers was my first choice. Yeah. And how did you, so you've then moved to, your moved across to England. How did your parents feel about you joining when you rang them up and you're like, yeah, I'm thinking of joining the British Army. I think deep down they always knew that I was, you know, I would join uh, either the police force um, or the army. It was always, um, I guess, a dream because my my dad, you know, he was ex-police mm-hmm. in the South African police force. My mom, she was a nurse. My my uncle, one of my uncles, he was in the South African fire brigade. Um, my grandpa, uh, grandfather, he was a pilot in the Second World War in the North African campaign oh, up in Egypt. Um, and another, uh, my mom's dad, he was in his African, um, uh, also in, 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 in uniform. And um, I suppose, yeah, they were happy. They were supportive, you know, that they, they were never um, holding back for his support. Well, um, obviously you've grown, you've, you've spent a lot of time with British people and stuff. How what was the difference between your, do, do you think your South African bringing up to the British way of bringing up? Like, you, you're from Joburg, right? Yeah, I was born um, in Joburg and my folks moved down to um, a small suburb called Rinnepoort. Um Well, actually a big suburb, you know, a lot of people there. And uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up with good family values, um, a very sort of um, strict household since my daddy was, you know, I was in the police force and yeah. um, I would say the same. Roughly the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I left, but, but but when I left in 2000, I never went on a plane. I've never fl- flown on on a plane or any charters. That was the first time I've actually left. I've travelled a, a few times in South Africa in, in, in those years. But yeah, when I left, in, in, it was in, in um, I think July. Yeah, 2000. That was the first time I actually stepped on a big 747 plane and I right. went on international flights. You know. Yeah. Uh, and I've never experienced anything like that before. Never been on my own. Um, to a different country, so it was definitely a big eye opener when I when I got to Heathrow Airport. Mm. And then you just did they were they was your was your dad okay with you joining the British Army rather than the South African Defence Force? Yes, because like I think it? at that stage that we're going through a slow transition of of big change within South Africa. I think the the transition started in ninety three ninety four. Yeah. Um, I probably won't go into detail as in with the old, uh, yeah. you know, when they got rid of the apartheid into, you know, to make it into a new South Africa opportunities, um, yeah. that sort of thing. But it was, I think the police, South African police and the South African army, defense force went through a, a, a massive transition and change. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, um, operators and, and soldiers and veterans, they, I think they, they pursue other interests and yeah. uh, they went somewhere else, other state within South Africa, and they um, pursue other other interests, other contracts, other somewhere in Africa or abroad, you know. Um, but um, for me, it was, um, I think it was deep down, I always knew it would either be um, the police or something similar. Yeah. And my, and my mom, yeah, they were they were happy. Maybe deep down, my mom thought, oh, you know, because she, she went through the same with my dad where he left for months on end to do, um, to do the, uh, the border. Warfare, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, alongside the South African Defence Force, you know, and with um, with the police and various other special uh, police units, you know. 
I think she puts it, but oh, what if he goes away and goes to war and all that? No, but me, as you know, at that age, I never thought of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, and that was 2000. What year was this? 2000? So this was. Yeah. 2000, I left, but I joined my basic training when I signed the papers was in 2003, up in oh, right. August in 2003. Before that, you know, I've, I've never met other nationals. I've never been abroad. So it gave me the opportunity to travel a bit in Europe um, and, and to see what the world's like by myself, mm-hmm. you know. So I went through um, a few other countries within Europe and all that. But uh, prior to that, I had no other knowledge on um, what the British Army is, is um, or what they did back then or you know any other tours i had no no idea whatsoever you know so yeah, it, was, it was all new to me and how, how was um how was training for you being no, were, you the was, only, were you the only south african or only foreign no, person? no there was another lad there um we end up in the same um battalion as well uh zuki um mm-hmm. oh, tanda tanda yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, we, nice. in, the, in the same section as well oh so nice we together yeah and um i think there was another two south africans uh, but that was you know I've, um that was last time that i've seen them it was back in basic so back then mm-hmm. it, not that many and and even when i got to battalion i think there was um eugene and yep. myself and that and i think shui or um he, he got there much much later yeah. and then uh, a few others but not that many though not that many and, and how was training mate was it was it good did you enjoy it? I did, yes. It was definitely a, a, a massive, massive learning curve, you know, in the sense of the, the fitness, you know. But when it comes to the discipline, um, it was easy for me because I grew up in an environment back home where it was expected, it was taught, it was taught in school. It was, you know, the values, uh, you know, the uh, respect and commitment and, and all of that integrity. You know, it, it was taught in South African schools. It was expected. So, um, for me, that was nothing new, but all the tactics, all the, all the tabbing, all the running, it was, yeah, it was, it was a steep learning curve, but, um, I played the gray man. I think I played the gray man well, kept myself to myself. And, um, I think that was probably the fittest that I've been in my life. It was yeah. basic. Definitely. Yeah. And I think I was also the oldest. I was, I was 26 when I joined. Yeah. Uh, late age, my, I think the training staff there, the, the section commander, I think he was 26 as well. Anyway. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think being? Do you think being older helped you in your training? Yeah. Like, because I joined, I I did training when I was eighteen, and you know, you know, you like when you're eighteen, I'm you're stupid, but <laughs> you know, you think you know, you think you know everything, but when you look back at someone, you look back at yourself at the age of eighteen, you're like, Jesus Christ, you you were a stupid person. Yeah. Um, I, I would say so. Yeah, I would say that. Um, you know, because I. I did a whole different career back then. I was a qualified personal trainer in South Africa, and I did that for a couple of years. I went over to the UK. Initially, um, I worked in a bloody food factory of all places, but it was a job, and I went to Oxford. It was something else. I worked as a barman for a very short time. Um, and then I worked at a five-star hotel in, in Knightsbridge. I was there for um, a couple of years, and then it was the army. But, yeah, it was a whole different in you know, the life before that you know so i would say it was more you know more mature yes i mean early years as you as you've said you would make all these dumb choices do these dumb mm. things so you learn the highway you know but yeah i would say it definitely helped nice. and then you joined battalion uh you so you joined fusiliers that's how we know each other you're in the second battalion 
And where did you join? Where they were in Northern Ireland when you joined up? Northern Ireland, yeah. So I went straight to I think it was Beswick Platoon um, there for a short bit, and then they chucked me in a um, a company in in, in Palace Barracks. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, that was a massive eye opener. I had no prior knowledge of the the history of of the country, the history of um, the armed forces, their um, their role, why they went there. So I had to learn quickly. Um, yeah. It was definitely an, an eye opener for me. Yeah. And and this was two thousand and three, two thousand and four. Two thousand and four, in in the beginning of two thousand and four, I just passed out of basic. I went over to Palace Barracks. Uh, a couple of weeks, I think I was in in Beswick platoon, and then went over to A Company, and yeah, I was with with um, with A Company. Um, the whole of two thousand and four, and two thousand and five, it was at the back end. Not back in, I think it was in the beginning of 2005 that um, the company got tasked to send a the CNC company to um, Optelic 6. Right. Okay, so you, so you, so just how was being in Northern Ireland on a, so your, your, your knowledge of the history of why we were in Northern Ireland was not, I guess, not there because you, you're from South Africa, but how was, how was it being there on a resident? So for those who don't know, what, they were the fusiliers were posted for two years at that time we were doing two-year residential posts and how was it being there as like a you're is a posting but you're essentially on the on an operational tour it was how bizarre was it was bizarre because it, we went they were still i think we're probably the last um company or, or battalion that did patrols you know with the vehicles work with the local police it was bizarre because you get normal um people there um besides with the marching season um you know just going about the everyday life and then you're out there doing all these ops um posted to various places there um it, it was b- bizarre it was really bizarre you know um mm. to say the least but you would get used to it you would get used to uh, routine you would get used to um uh, the postings the patrols you did but yeah for me i'm coming from south africa it was just purely bizarre the fact that we you know, on a residential tour in Northern Ireland, you know, and then, uh, yeah, bizarre, man. So I've had a few guests on now that have, you know, been, a, been in Northern Ireland in different times, but when you were there, the hostile, it was, it was not so much a hostile environment. It was more just, I guess we were just there man in the position until we kind of handed over and stopped being there. Yeah. And yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's just, it's just interesting to see and he, Sorry, mate, my computer's having a meltdown. Um, it's just interesting to see, you know, you're still going on, on patrols and whatnot, but really it, it's just a, a non-hostile environment. But, it, but yet you were still doing for, I just, if you can just go into what you guys were doing out there, because obviously when I joined, it was just after Northern Ireland. All, yeah. all I'd heard about was you just doing loads of training like riot training and stuff like that we did lots of riot training yeah correct yeah we um lots of them during marching season we were on standby uh we um i think it's also during that stage where some one parachute regiment i think it was one or two para when they stationed they they were the ones that had some of their kits nicked out of a, a snatch during the uh, marching season um what else um worked with the local police as well yeah. And then various sort of patrols with them and work um, with them as well. And the loads of various exercises and in Northern Ireland as well. 
Um, like I say, it was during that stage where a lot of this stuff um, was was sort of cut back in a sense of patrols and, and, and um, sort of the, the, the threat level was still there, but it, it wasn't as, as, as bad as in, in the past. Mm. And then you, so you were a company at this time, but then you deployed with a C company. What did you um, get asked to go across or did you volunteer to go across the C company? Um, I, I volunteered. It was um, initially C company was getting ready at that stage. It was, uh, they were given the green light that they would deploy to um, Basra. And then um, they wanted extra personnel and I sort of volunteered for that because uh, I just came off the, um, or that, the camping, um, I forgot the name of the that patrol that did in, in the UK, or the camping patrol. Oh, yeah. um, I started with that and then we got ready to ship or to actually go across to the UK and I developed a injury. I couldn't do it. And then um, it was at that later stage then I heard that they're going to send a platoon or a, 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 a company across. And, um, and I volunteered and um, and that's why I went across and I got attached to to C Company, which eventually, in the end, um, I, I then moved into C Company itself. Yeah. Um, again, it was bizarre being going from one residential tour onto another operational tour. Um, weird. Yeah, that's a, so you essentially going from one tour to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where and how was Iraq when you got there? Um, I think initially the build-up was, was really good because uh, with the training itself, we did some training in Northern Ireland, uh, with the training in, in the UK, and I think all the lads, everyone very hopped up. They were ready to go. You know, we will be watching all these different um, videos from different companies that went there, um, in, and uh, they got contacts in Alamara and, and then places. And I think some places that Kiwi went to that he spoke about, you know, so it was yeah. this big hype. And when eventually when we got there, it felt like it was the total opposite, you know, um, right. it was a long tour, um, a lot of um, ops, a lot of uh, patrols, um, whether with the choppers, on foot, on vehicles, on the boats, um, a lot of, um, it was a number of incoming rounds um, from the local militias there onto the uh, Basra compound itself as, um, mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, it was a long tour, it was a long tour. Um, so was, think, was it a full six month -er? Yeah, it was full, full yeah. six months. Yeah, um, likely my, I think my R&R was, I think somewhere in, in the middle, which I think it was good. Yeah. Um, but in a sense, I think it's probably, um, I, I should have stayed if I if I had the choice and not go on R&R because you, you all have to, you get home, you're in a different mindset. It takes you so long to initially relax and zone back into the local at home because people just don't understand. You just came back yeah. from a different, where there is actually people out there actively trying to kill you, you know, and and then when you just sort of um, got used to your surroundings, then you had to go back and then you know had to back into rock, back into the old um, combats and back on patrols, you know. Um, so I think if I had the choice, I would just stay out there in you know, a six yeah. months, eight months instead of having yeah. your in between. Interesting, yeah, so like you know, me and Hugh, my Hugh Kia spoke about that. He said, you know, I think R and R should be optional. Yeah, and you know, I, I was unfortunately I never I never even made it to my R and R because because I got injured, like in tour dodger. But um, but like seeing my seeing my brother, you know, coming back from tour, and, and it was the uh, he went he went back out. I drove him back to Akateri, not Akateri, 
where is it, of Bryce Norton. I drove him back to Bryce Norton to go back out, and it's just the anticipation of, you, you just, you're just a different person for that two weeks, aren't you? Well, it's not yeah. even two weeks, it's like 10 days, I guess. Um, yeah, oh, definitely. So, yeah, I guess it, it begs a question of whether it's, it, it, it could be optional, but then, but then you run the risk of it being, you know, messing with you too much without having that time to zone out and then go back into it. Yeah. Now, I suppose the thing is, if they could say fly you somewhere else, and you know, um, maybe from Basra to, um, was it Shaiba? Maybe they stay there for a, I don't know, a week or a couple of days and back to your area um, yeah. But it just, yeah, the the whole flying out, flying back. Um, and I just felt like I was missing. I felt like, you know, I'm letting the, the, the blokes down. I'm letting the team down, you know, and then, then having someone else in the team to replace my spot. I just felt like, no, I'm, I'm missing out. I need to be back there with them. I'm missing. I want to be there, you know, which is something it's hard to explain because I think we were still based in, in Northern Ireland and I didn't even go back to South Africa. I went oh, back right. to the UK. Mm. Uh, it was it was bizarre because we had two weeks leave pre-tour <laughs> and um. I don't think I went home either. No, I stayed with the Northern Ireland and then went on tour. And then R&R, I went back to the UK and it wasn't up until we finished the six month. Then I went home to South Africa. Mm. It was just, it, it, it's a long bloody flight, you know, and if I miss a flight or something goes wrong, you know, yeah. you, you, you're stuck. You know? so, and, and yeah. So you went back to the UK in your R&R, so you, yeah. you were kind of, what did you do? In, how was that for you then? Being... Um, well, the thing is, because I, I knew the place and I had some friends there, so I yeah. stayed with them. I had a friend that was the one that I worked for um, in Oxford. He was he, he had the pub in, in mm-hmm. Oxford. Strange enough, he was the the friend that I worked for in South Africa because he, he owned a gym, um, and I initially worked for him on reception. And it was his wife at the time that said I should become a personal trainer. I should become qualified, I can then work there full time, train yeah. time, and that's what I did. And then when I left, and, and then they immigrated to the UK some years later, and I followed some years later as well. And then I got there, and I went up to, was it Evgen? I worked in the food factory. And then when I went to Oxford, he was already there. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's when, when I had my R&R um, in the middle of, of the tour, he, um, I think he was in a different pub within in the UK, and um, no, I think it, I don't think it was. He, he left that, but he was still, he was living in Oxford at the time, yeah. very close to Bryce Norton, and you know, so I stayed with him for a bit. Again, it was it was different. It was I just felt uncomfortable, not because I was living with him and his family and, and two young daughters. The fact that I just felt like I was missing out. I was yeah. I was letting the lights down, and, and I needed to be to be back there. I just couldn't relax totally. It was it was, yeah. it was it's hard to explain to to someone here because we've done all the training prior all the prep and again all the language that we had to learn all the different techniques training and then we get there it's 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 all different as well the heat the 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 culture um uh, it's 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 hard to explain yeah well you, you know you're in an environment where essentially you've got people they're not wanting you there and trying to yeah, do everything exactly. they can trying to do everything they can to get you out um do you remember your how, how was that tour as in in terms of was that idf did you get contacted much the only context was mostly your incoming rockets at night or daytime early in the morning um 
mortar rounds coming in. I think that that was the only sort of big real threat for us at that time. Um, however, I mean, I, w I will never know. I don't think any of us will know the amount of IDs that we've driven past that never went off. Mm -hmm. um, our ECM worked, whether it was a faulty ID, whether that phone call from the, the person to the actual device never worked. I, I don't know, but um, it was the other call signs there, I think was Dickie's platoon. They were attached to different um, units uh, across from um, our sort of um, area. And mm. they got hit twice. Yeah. And, IDs. and it was at that time, it was when those, um, I think it was those teams from Iran slept across the border and they started making those um, IEDs that um, they was, yeah, that was lethal. Um, at the time, we had no idea, but it was only, again, I mean, I only read about this. Um, was it a few years a few years ago that yeah. these teams from Iran crossing over and training and making these IDs um, very accurate, very lethal, and that's how I think Dickie's Dickie's um, team got got hit with the initial uh, first one and then the second one, you know, and then how two of our lads got got killed in that one, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was a a very surreal, very eerie moment when we heard about that, you know, when the when they team got got hit and we, we lost just two blokes and, and a further and um, um, I was a big T got injured as well yeah one uh, one other as well I think shorty shorty yeah yeah there was there was two that got injured yeah. got the limbs blown off and then obviously um, another two lads um, and then yeah, how, yeah obviously this was the first kind of I guess the Fusiliers is that's how the you know Early Northern Ireland, you know, we had quite a few incidents there, but for, for for a while, there's not been many much going on, and to to have two lads, two lads killed, two lads injured, and while you're on tour, how how did, did you find that affected your headspace? Yeah, at all? it did. It did definitely because one of them, it was actually on the day when we were on the ranges prior to. Um, being deployed from Shiba to to Basra Palace, it was actually one of the lads was actually standing next to me on the ranges, you know, and I remember speaking to him, and I think yeah, that was the last time I spoke to him, and that's something that always stayed with me. We weren't close friends. I knew of him, he knew of me, but at that's a moment that will stay with me, and and it affected me, especially when it came over the radio. We just got off um, patrolling the river on on, on the boats. We got off and it came over the net that um, they got hit again. Um, again, I mean, I can only describe how it affected me. Um, I don't know how, how or if it affected any of the other lads that was in, in, in our call sign. I can only, I don't think I can, can imagine what it felt like for the actual team that got hit, Dickie's team and all that. Um, but yeah, I would say it affected all of us because we had this big build up. Um, to it, you know, ready um, to go rocking. We were looking for for war, wanted to get out there, and it was kind of slightly the, the opposite, you know. Um, and then that happened. It was uh, open at that, you know, the threat is there, it's real, and, and you got to be, you know, aware of your surroundings, you know. Yeah, I guess when your when your anticipation is war, you know, like you were just saying, you're just, you know, you're expecting contact all the time, you're expecting to get opened up and and then it doesn't happen. So it's kind of an anticlimax. So I guess your your brain will kind of be like, ah, oh, it's it's not what it was. And then all of a sudden you've taken two two fatalities and two other casualties. You 
it kind of will mess with you emotionally because you're like, fuck, I thought we didn't think we, your brain will be like, I didn't think we were in such a hostile environment. And then we've all of a sudden taken two, two, two deaths. It just would have, yeah, could have thrown you off a bit. And again, oh, exactly. you know, it was, it was similar when I was, I guess, when I, you know, we'll talk about it when you went singing, but when I was in singing, it was a different time to when you were there. And it was, yeah. for me, it was just, you know, we had the contacts, but it was few and far between compared to the earlier days. But we were just IED heaven or hell as well, you know. So it was, I guess, similar in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely messes with, you, with your mind because I think with the build-up, I think it was a bit of a false build-up in the sense of, um, I've never been to a place like that before. Um, Northern Ireland for me was a massive learning curve, you know. Uh, at the end of the two years, I, I knew more about the place. I knew more about the history. Why? Not totally why, but a, a lot more than I in, um, than the beginning when I got there about the history of uh, the British forces and the tactics and, and who's the bad guys and, you know, how you operate, how you patrol, how you search vehicles, you know, where you stand, you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, booby traps um, and bombs and how you search a vehicle and and a lot of that I think we we used and utilized within um, Iraq and on, on our obsolete six but then it, um, but that build up um, it was it was different in the sense of we had this, um, this big energy and when we got to to Iraq it was it was a bit slow pace um, Again, uh, it was. I think we were looking for that contact, and it was a, just a dry period. I think again, a lot of incoming mortar rounds, um, RPGs, um, and they couldn't aim for shit. You know, some of them yeah. accurate. Um, more so, I think when we went back in two thousand and six, um, they got a bit more accurate, and a lot of them fell in in camp. I think um, that ID that was set up under that bridge. They, that uh, call sign was patrolling past on the boat, and I think a, a female, a female soldier died on that. Mm -hmm. that um, was, it was in 2006. Um, but then again, yeah, just a build up. I think it was a. Everyone was ready to go looking for war, because we're watching all these, you know, platoon videos of previous companies that went there. Um, it's massive contacts. I think we were expecting that, and it never occurred. Mm. And then. But but you you would you did get mortar attack and uh, rockets and with Chinese rockets isn't it mainly out there? And how is how was that coming? You know, in, I guess you you knew they weren't that accurate, but it was it's still kind of a bit of hesitation and you know you get an IDF. Oh heck yes! I mean in the in the beginning was you know running for cover, getting under your bed or getting in an hard cover, helmets on, body armor on. But I think after a while. It's not we get lazy. I think um, you know of the threat, but you just sort of, yeah, okay, cool. I know it's coming. I know it's landing. You wait for the call, for the all clear. You get your helmet on or your body armor on, or you just you pull your, your Kevlar duvet over and you carry on yeah. sleeping. But um, yeah, the first couple of times, yeah, it's scary. Um, for me, it was it was scary. It was the first wheel. The, the, you, you could hear the impact, and then later on, you can go inspect the actual damage itself. And there was a few um, that impacted the actual wall um of, of the of, of the palace itself you know so it was yeah it was it was a bit scary for me the first few times you know because you've never experienced it you know you, you can yeah. train all the time um trying to make it as real as you can but when you're actually there and you can hear the around going off and they're falling closer and closer it's um 
Yeah, it's it's uh it's scary, man. Yeah, I mean it's funny because you know the books I've read, you always you always read them and they say you could tell who the who the veterans of IDF are because they'll just either carry on walking their normal speed or just just do nothing. Whereas you the the fresh faced new people are running for cover. When, it, when essentially you can't really do shit because no, you can't. Not, if it's, it's your time, it's your time. If it's going to pull yeah. nearby, it's going to pull nearby. You just, you know, um, you, if you can't don your helmet, body armor, and just keep calm, stay calm, and you know, wait for instructions. Or, I mean, there's there's nothing you can do. If it if it falls nearby, it's you know, because I remember in 2006 there was, um, we stayed within high cover within I think um, hotel building. On a second tour, and a few lads from different course on state in tent itself, and their tent got striped with, you know, uh, with the mortar and stuff, and it obviously damaged the tent and all that. But you know, if it's, it's your time, it falls nearby. There's nothing you can do. It's gonna, it's mm. gonna hit you regardless, you know. Whether it be shrapnel or, or the run itself, it's yeah, yeah way it works. And when you finished your tour, did you was a battalion still in uh, battalion still in Northern Ireland, or had they moved to Cyprus? Um, but they stayed, they've moved to Cyprus. So we had our leave. Um, I went back to South Africa. I went back home, and then um, joined. And, that, and how was how was going back home after being away for six months? Well, you you were essentially away. You're essentially away for a long time, weren't you? Oh yeah, loads, loads. I mean. Yeah. Um, at that stage, I was used to being away from the family. Um, back home was fine. I was, I was, um, I think I had a sense of pride within me. Um, I couldn't wait to go tell my old man. Um, but yeah, as normal, we won't say much. He won't say much. Um, we just sit there. And I think yeah, we just sit there in silence. You know, I would have a drink. He would have a drink. You know, and I, I, it's not until years later that I realised. You know, I think after I got back from Afghan, why. Um, why the silence? Why he's is always quiet? Why he doesn't talk about what he's experienced and what he's seen yeah. in the in the South African in a border warfare in the in the bush? Um, but again, I, um, I was just happy to be home, happy to you know explain what I've been through. I wanted to go and tell every man and his dog what I've seen, what I've experienced, the different culture within ops, working with other regiments, and but then I realised very quickly, people just don't give a shit. They yeah. they, they They've never been there. They don't want to know that they, they, they don't care. Besides my mom and, and my dad and maybe my sister, you know, back then, um, it, it was fine. There was there was no period of I felt sorry or I felt depressed or, or anything. You know, it was I was just happy to be home, enjoying my, my leave and looking looking forward to getting back to battalion. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that doesn't change as you. People say they give a shit, but really, I guess it's different in South Africa because in South Africa it's not. I guess it's not really their war as such. But even in the UK, it's uh, people don't really give a shit. The, the people close to you do, but no one, no one, no one else really does. Yeah, true. I think it's also because they don't know much about it. You know, it's it's um it was it was a lot on the news at the time. I think it was um, a lot of um, on the troops on Sky News and all that, you know, because I remember it was in 2003. Um, there was a lot on the news and I was I was roaring to go. I was really I was I just joined my basic and I thought I want to go. I want to mm. go to Iraq. I want to I want to volunteer. I want to go. And when I got there, I thought, well, this is shit. I'm not going to volunteer ever again. 
Now you're aiming this bloody heat with the only guys patrolling out. There's no locals um, around. All the shops are closed when the only bloody plonkers in the vehicle patrolling, you know. But then you, you adapt, you improvise, you overcome, you crack on, you know. Mm. And then you joined the battalion back in Cyprus. Yeah, it was in Cyprus. It was in 2006. It was, um, I was still with, with C Company at the time, you know, um, in that first year in Cyprus, man. It was glorious. It was fantastic. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I could, I would go back there in a heartbeat. You know, I had the best time in Cyprus, especially that first year. You know, it was that time that I played rugby for the battalion. Um, we um, went to all the local bars down the strip, went to Napa. Was it Napa? Napa, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, it was fun. It, it was great. You know, lots of training. Yeah, with the battalion. Yeah, but we, because we're on the beach, we had the beach there. Um, knock off early on on various that, days. That uh, beach it, bar, fucking lovely. <laughs> I had some great memories there, man. It was it was awesome. The first year, especially I think in in the winter, all of us went down to the local bar in Lanaka, all the bars there, and um, drank that dry. And then I think as summer approached, um, started going to to Napa. I never, um, went all the bars and the clubs there, and it was at that stage where you see all these blokes going AWOL, or they, <laughs> or they getting back to work, back to battalion, or they disappear. Um, yeah, well, it was always payday, wasn't it? Payday. People yeah. go AWOL on payday. So it's, and, uh, what, what, what a post. I mean, the battalion got disbanded. They, they went back, I guess, was it 2013? I don't know. But they, so after our tour, or after our two years there, I think, yeah, it was two years in London and two years in Germany. Then they went back to Cyprus. And I'm pretty sure there's a good handful of lads who are still in Cyprus because they've just kind of like stayed on with the units that's there. I think we've got like, there's there's quite a few that are still there. They're like, the battalion battalion got disbanded. So they've gone, well, we'll just stay with, we'll transfer to the units that's in Cyprus. And I guess they've just kind of stayed with, out and there's yeah there's a yeah. few lads that are still there i know lockie's still there um i think phil carr's still there yeah just fucking why not what a life yeah i mean why not you know it's, it's a great place to be man especially in the in the summer and um you you joined the battalion back in the battalion and ha- had trb kicked off their reserve battalion so mm, with a- I think, yeah 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 it was that stage where we started to um, to get um, not orders, but we we got information on on what's happening, on our role, on what we're gonna do, and and, and what and how things will um, will evolve or, or fall out or change for us over the next sort of year or two, you know. And then training kicked in. I think the late mid 2006, I was. I think training kicked in, uh, as in um, and expect us our role and, and how things would um, work for us over there. Yeah, for. You know, I've said a few times, but for those who don't know, Theatre Reserve Battalion is a role where we, we guess we're in Cyprus, where you're on you're on standby to provide either backup or if there was a new need for new, you know, more soldiers, and the Theatre Reserve Battalion would provide it. And I guess is that where you deployed on your second time to Iraq? Yeah, it was. Yes, actually, I think we deployed from Jordan. We were on exercise mm. in Jordan, and we deployed from there. Again, bizarre. Um, I had a great time in Jordan, um, done, done some training there with with um, with Ricky, and uh, with Griff and Kiwi and 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 Suti and various other guys. Again, blokes I haven't spoken in years, blokes I haven't seen since. Yeah. since but a few of them I've been in touch with. A few of them I've been 
you know, texting and and and, and uh, phone then. But it was at that stage, yeah, I went back to to rock. It was on uh, when was it? Um, two thousand and six. It was yeah. Again, it was from Jordan straight onto um, operational tour. Um, I think C company full- didn't C company go to Iraq and A company went Afghan. Was that was that it? Or was that uh, um, yeah, I think it was a um, a company went to Afghan, um, but at that stage I was with Dicky and and the and, and the lads with with Ricky, and yeah. we got um, sent to a different area in in Iraq in in, in Basra, so I, it, it it wasn't um, Basra Palace, it was um, hotel building, some 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 hotel building that we went to, and we. We stayed there again. Different. Um, we were there um, for a short time. Um, again, a lot of incoming. Uh, it was that stage where some of the rounds got very close. A few rounds fell either outside of the walls or inside. And it was on that tour that um, one female guy got killed. Um, one ID was actually underneath that bridge, the main bridge yeah. that we used to have a lot. And yeah, and, and, and she obviously um, died from her injuries. Mm-hmm. And, and how was the tour different for you? Did, was it? Do you feel more comfortable knowing that you've been there and you yeah. knew the area a little, little bit? So did that feel you with a little bit more comfort inside? I would say so. Yeah, it was an area that we um, got. Com- well, we we knew um, the culture, the language, the threats. It was it was still there that that we knew. Um, it's basically another tour, um, low key, and um, I would say so. Yeah. Mm. And it, did the did it change? Did you again? Was it the same kind of threat as in small and uh, not small arms, but more mortar attacks, rocket attacks? Yeah, and IEDs. Yeah, yeah um, IEDs. I would say, um, but again, loads of your small arms in in the sense of your mortar attacks, RPGs, uh, not RPGs, man, um, Chinese rockets, mm. mortar rounds. Um, I mean, obviously a lot closer than than normal. Um, yeah. And uh, but that was a shorter tour, and you came back. Um, I guess so. It was a different experience coming back from this tour because you're going back to a battalion that's kind of got companies and platoons here and there and everywhere. So it's you're just coming back. How was coming back from that tour? It was a, it was a a different um a, well a, a very busy time for us because you, know, you had so many people in so many different places you know um doing uh, different roles. Coming back was um positive. It was fine. Um, n- no real issues whatsoever. The fact that we did everything together, did training together, we went to Jordan together, we stayed together, and it wasn't you know um, every time that I had leave, I would either if I could go to South Africa, it was a, if if it was a long leave. I would mm-hmm. then go home. Otherwise, I would go back to the UK. You know, I would um, hang up with with Griff and 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 the lads from 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 Ricky. You know, mm. um, yeah. And and then your um, did you deploy again while on Theatre Reserve Battalion? Um, the only time I deployed after that was um to to Sangen. Yeah. Yeah. I think we 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 got back. At the beginning of 2007, and we were in. Um, we told to go on, onto the square, and obviously the CEO were there, and, and he, um, he said, "I hope you guys have a great leave and all that, but you know, we're going to get ready to to go to Afghan. You know, we're going to train and, and we're going to go in." 
from that speech onwards, it was a different um, atmosphere. Everything changed. Everything felt different. We we knew it was it was going to be different. It's, it's not going to be um, the rock. It's it's going to be a different ball game altogether. Mm. And when trying to kick off, I think we all knew it. We all you know got, got switched on and we all cracked on with it. Mm-hmm. And was, who did you deploy to to Afghan with? Is the C company still? No, I was um, then with with Ricky and yeah. I played with the D company yeah. Yeah. With the lads, because he was on my previous tour with um, when I went to Iraq in 2006, I was with with Ricky and again with with Ricky. Right. Uh, at that stage, I think uh, yeah, Captain Tiller was with us. Um, Phil Imarsh was with us. Griff and obviously the rest of of Ricky. Um, yeah. And, but let's before we talk about your tour in Afghan. What what made you join Recce? Because you know, for for those in an infantry battalion, Recce kind of is the the sort of crim of the crop, the top the kind of top lads. What made you decide to do that, and how did you find be, being a Recce soldier? Well, I think the decision was was made for me. I was um, getting ready to to do the NCO card, and I'm pretty sure to this day, I believe it was. Um, Ed Turville, it was Captain Turville at the time. He asked me to come across, you know, to do the recce card, you know, and, and I thought, yeah, sure, why not? And I left. Um, I was actually in a class with with Phil Imarsh. He was he was doing something. It was within the first week of the NCO card, and I could pull out and I could, you know, put onto the recce card, which was I can't remember the area in in Cyprus. It was whole. It was obviously far away from 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 Larnaca, from from camp. Um, and we were there for the whole time. Um, it was great. I loved it. It was hard for me because I've never done anything like, like that before. It was there. You had to motivate yourself. You had to show and prove it to show up that you want to be there and you can be there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, yeah, I, I was I was happy to, to be part of, of, of working. Yeah, um, it's more, more of an adult. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, more of an adult. They treated differently. Um, it was some good lads, some good blokes, man. Good leadership, great leadership, you know, from from um, Ed Serval, from Dickey. Um, I think Phil joined Ricky much, much later, I think, because he went with, with um, he went everywhere, man. He went with yeah. um, A Company initially when they went to, to Nazad. Then he joined, I think, us in, in Sangan, but he joined Ricky before, uh, before then, you know. But the blokes, itself you know um very mature uh, a lot of them seen that seen you know um seen action in, in other places you know um griff he, he was from cop i think um, um sully was there he was on the record as well um and, uh, and a few others man. i mean but, i was yeah. saying saying to you before that there is you you and to me when i turned up i think you'll turn up 2007 you had you and Sully were like these two giants, scary looking man, scary looking men that were just, but well, you know, you're like, fuck, I don't want to really talk to them or be talking to them. <laughs> but then you speak to them and then you're like, oh, fuck, that sound. But then you got Phil Imarsh, who's probably the scariest man for a new bloke turning up because A, he didn't like fucking red asses, but B, he was just, uh, you, you know, you have people who just got that stare, you're like, oh, fuck, don't want to yeah. cross them, don't want to cross them. And I guess it fucking all ended up in recce, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, Phil was a different breed altogether and a very switched on soldier, you know, yeah. a, a very leader in the field, um, you know, in camp, um, in the field. And I was certainly, man, um, great, great bloke, great friend. Um, still, 
do the same touch with him. Not as often, you know, but, you know, you can speak to a bloke today and then, you know, time will go by five years, five months, mm. and then it's as if you spoke to him this morning, you know. Um, mm. And, yeah, um, it was actually Sully that, you know, he, he stood by um, in a time that I, I you know, it was a difficult time where my sister, you know, she felt ill, she, she felt sick in South Africa. And he was the one that actually paid my airline ticket um, in Cyprus to to go fly back home. Um, after I spoke to the CEO, um, asked if I could, you know, go back home uh, because my sister's ill. And he was the one drove my car, my Jeep, because I had a Jeep in, in Cyprus. He drove me to the airport. He, don't worry, here's the, um, the, 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 the money. I'll pay for it. You pay back when you can, you know. Yeah. Um, I've got a lot of time for him. A great, great bloke. Good bloke, yeah. Great bloke, yeah, man. Yeah, and just so just while you're talking on that, you know, you said you got a Jeep. Let's just talk a little bit about the life in Cyprus because you've yeah. got you're cutting around in a Jeep as you know, cool as shit. But one one thing that was good and one thing that is good about the army is there's a lot of the bullshit with it. You, you know, we, yeah, we we met by playing rugby, fucking, which was a cool thing. We had. I think the battalion gave us like three weeks off to train for Akatiri tens, and you know we just a lot of training with that. There was a lot of war sports. And what was your experience with the the, the fun stuff in the army? I would say the fun stuff. It was it was good. It was good in a in a time where um, we needed it, especially with with the Akatiri tens for the rock, because it was the first year in two thousand and six that I actually played for the battalion. Um, and again, uh, just it, yes, it's great doing the training together and being on the ranges and going on ops, but then doing fun stuff together at the rugby, all the Fiji lads, you know, old Susu and Big T and there's Gruff and there's all the other lads. Now, it was it was great having that sort of time with them, you know, seeing, um, being with them. Um, and again, the, the, the following year, I helped with the coaching side of things, you know, so I'm still part of the rugby, still got time off, you know, and still went to the... I know after that, your routines or sevens. Um, but yeah, it's a different atmosphere. It's a it's a bit of a release um, being able to to go and do that and play rugby, you know, and, and get away from from battalion and not being part of the bullshit that's that, that was there. Um, but then it was good coming back again, back into routine and, and being being part of it, you know, being back yeah. with the lads. But it was a good sort of um, break. Um, I think at the time um, we needed it. But then years later, years later, you think, well, it was it was actually good, you know, because you need that release, you need that break from um, that sort of fast-paced routine that, that we had at times. Yeah, I mean, we were messaging the other day, and we were talking about when we when we got kicked out of Akateri Tens, and then we went, we just started drinking with the Fijians. And for those who don't know and never drink and drunk with Fijians, it's uh, it's rough. You sit there and you sit in a circle. They pass around a cup. <laughs> They pass you around the cup with you, you. You're just swigging like a. It must be a shot worth of beer, so you think nothing of it, and then you're like an hour later or two hours later, you're like, holy fuck, I'm fucking steaming. But we did that for what I think it was well over 24 hours of just non-stop drinking. It was uh, brutal. I remember in, yeah, in, 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 was that week in in Akuteri, we had the. The sevens and um, 
I think it was that second year that I helped with the, with the coaching. It was that last night, um, just missed the final. Poor Griff was, he was mortified, you know, because he's really passionate about his rugby and he really wanted to win and be part of it, you know, and you could see that um, we're not going to make it. And he was just bawling his eyes out, you know, very passionate, very, very into the sport itself. And then come the final, yeah, we started drinking and he started drinking early. And fast forward much later that night, for some reason, I was I was back in in that accommodation that we had. Griff was there, mincing around, and then a taxi pulled up, and it was this bloke was was you know talking to us in separate, telling us or showing to us that there's a a bloke in the back. He's passed out, and it was Big T, and <laughs> there was myself and Griff, and we weren't sober at the time. We were absolutely away with the fairies, trying to get him, this big lad, out of the <laughs> taxi in the back, and then his prosthetic leg that fell off. In a, in, and trying to drag him out and a taxi driver just sitting there, you know, trying to usher us along to, to hurry up, you know. So those are those things that, that stand out, you know, that I um, recall, you know. Thank you, Big T. I mean, we jumped a little bit forward there, but um, so let's let's talk about uh, your deployment to Sangin and, and how was that? Sangin. Um, shit, man. I would say Sangin is is the tour that absolutely changed me. Sangin is the tour that um, I'm surprised I came away from alive. Sangin, I would say, is a tour that um, that I, it it mentally broke me. It it made me a different person. It's it's something that, that that's going to stay with me until the day I I bench press daisies. You know, it's it's something that. I will forever remember. Mm-hmm. And, and what was he? So I was there a, a bit later. But yeah. you know, if, anybody, if anyone knows you, or you're you're, you're quite a you're, you're a very poetic man. You you do a lot of you do a lot of your poetry. Did that all come from your experiences in singing, really? And you start to look at start to look at things differently. I would say it's always been there. The writing's always been there, but I've I've never had that self confidence to to put it into into um, proper poetry. You know, I remember keeping a log. It was initially um, a diary of the actual context that we that we had. You know, um, I started the diary. We were in in Bastion, and we had two different chalks, and I was on the second chalk to to fly into Sangen, but we were kept behind another 24 hours because there was a um, incident in, in Sangen, um, there were two two soldiers that got they, um, killed with an RPG, uh, I think it was Airbus RPG, and, and we had to wait. And then I started, you know, keeping track of all the different contacts within Sangen itself. And mm-hmm. over the course of the weeks, or days and weeks, I started to write more into those, um, into that little diary I, I had. Uh, more so on how I felt. I still kept track of all the contacts that we had, you know, what time mm-hmm. and how much. How long it lasted, you know. Um, but during the downtime, you can either sleep or you know, or you could read. And and I just started to write, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And and each time I would then ent- um, put an entry into the actual diary itself, I would just write more and more about how it felt. Um, some you know positive, some negative thoughts. In other days, um, I would not have the strength to actually write anything. I just wanted to, to go and sleep. Of course, I haven't eaten properly for, you know, um, a few days. Mm. 
So then I would then write more in just how it felt for me and, and what my thoughts and feelings were at the time. Um, but then it wasn't up until, geez, much, much later. Because after that, you know, all those memories, all those thoughts, all those experiences, I just left, you know, in a bloody shoebox somewhere in the back of my mind. And I, mm-hmm. just, I thought, I'm not going to go back there again. Um, but, but there was no need for me to, to talk to people about it, you know, yes, to, to blokes like yourself and, and to Sully or other people. But then it gets to a point that you don't really want to talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, and then I went on and pursue other things. And it was up until uh, the end of, was it 2019, I've seen a a submission by the these two American veterans. They, they run their own business uh, for uh, veteran writers, you know, um, where they had a competition. I, I, well, more like a submission where you could write stuff in, and if it's good enough, um, it will be printed or published in a, a book that they're going to mm-hmm. publish. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, I've seen it. And it was just this this connection, this strong desire that, yeah, I want to do it. I can do it. You know, and I've written, I think, three poems. At the, at, it was in 2019 from that diary that I had, you know, all those thoughts and feelings. It was in there. And I thought, I'm going to just take some of that and put it together in these three poems. I submitted that. It was up until the end of last year that they got back to me and said that from my three poems that I submitted to will, will be published into um, into their, their um, yeah. second volume of uh, poetry, you know, written by, um, by veterans, you know. And then it was also in 2020 that it was another um, British veteran that approached me, seen my work on, on, on Instagram. It was at, at that time that I thought I'm going to um, share more of it. I'm going to mm-hmm. start writing and share more of it and so instead of just keeping it to myself i thought i'm going to share it i'm just going to put it on there on that medium but not on facebook so um, at that stage there was nothing on my facebook profile about any mm. of them i write you know and then he is seen it and he, he approached me asked if i wanted to be um, part of this this book that he's going to put together and publish you know and i said yes and i've written quite a number of poems for that book and in, in total i think it's about six or seven British veterans, and, and um, you've seen the details, it's all different yeah. veterans from backgrounds. Yeah, the, the Veteran Collective is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, that's the one, yeah, and I think I'm the only one that's actually written in poetry form. The remainder, all the other lads have written in different form, you know, stories yeah. or bits or uh, jokes or, you know, the experience in in Iraq or, or Afghan, you know. And then again, at the back end of, what was it, 2020, he approached me again, saying that he's going to do a second volume. Mm. That volume again will be you know, British veterans, and uh, it's going to be all poetry. If I want to submit more work, and and yeah, so I've written about fourteen poems in total for that, and I think he picked about twelve or thirteen for that. You know. But then again, so, it's, it's, yeah. So the the thing that's you know we've skipped ahead. I'll, I want to I'll go back to your your time in saying in in a, in a, in a yeah. minute, but um. You know, a lot, a lot of the issues we're seeing at the minute is the after effects of war, um, the after effects of people being away, you know, with veterans and people getting their mental health issues years later, not not immediately after. Um, do you feel you doing this poetry has helped you, you know, kind of come to terms with what had happened, what, what you know, what you've been through? Um, do you think whether if you'd have just kept that 
in your back and you never you know you never wrote your poetry do you think that could have maybe bored into something different and maybe would have made, put you in a worse place than you are now i would say so yes yeah. I, um i would say if i kept it all in and not talk about it and it would i'll be i think i'll be in a different place i think things would be far worse um it, it definitely helped but it, it's a i it's not just the the poetry it's talking about it it's mm-hmm. having therapy it's um discussing it it's um sharing it and i think with the poetry putting it in in written form it's it's giving me the uh, the tool to actually release or to actually share and talk about it you know rather than thinking i'm the only tool that's that's got these issues i'm not going to share i'm not going to talk about it so i'm just going to keep it in here yeah, in this little shoebox that i've that I've kept in the back of my mind since 2007, which is unhealthy, you know. But I think I made the conscious decision to do something about it, you know. You can have all the tools out there, all the help, all the mates, but if you don't take that initial step, even if it's a baby step, even if it's a minute step forward, you know, it's, it's going to end up differently, you know. And but that's definitely And I think what I think what you do and, you know, with things like people sharing their stories and not only helps you but it helps other people you know come to terms with it and you know they find common ground with you know especially your poetry or you know podcasts like this or other podcasts or other people telling their stories i think it allows people to find common ground but also it it, it also shows people who've not been in the, the same place but in a similar situation they can yeah. you know relate to it and it helps them process the information no, it does, yeah, especially with, with with your podcast, you know, some of the lads you spoke to in the, in the, in the past, you know, I can relate or I, uh, re, you know, related to that, to the fact that I've been to the same places and, and they've they've had the same issues, the same dramas, and I thought I was the only one with that issue or, or they went through that, but no, it was everyone else that went through the same shit, you know, whether it be good times, bad times, you know, uh, went through it together, you know, and it's just opening up, it's, it's talking about discussing it, you know, and it's it's also um, sharing it with someone that's that's trained that that can help you along the way. And um, I had, and this is probably the first time I, I mentioned it on here. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. Um, I had therapy. It was in um, when we had our lockdown over here. Um, I just went through a bad time, and it was. Uh, another American veteran that um, I didn't really initially reached out to him. He's mentioned something on his Instagram profile, and then I sent him a message thinking he's not going to answer. He's not going to read it. It's a high-profile individual in the veteran community, especially in in America. And then he read my message, and he's actually reached out to me. And to make a long story short, he organized therapy sessions for me with one of his. Um, colleagues that say, yeah. you know, same therapists, you know, and I had some therapy sessions for that person. Um, never thought I would. Um, mm. I always, you know, I've, I've been against the idea of talking to total strangers, someone that's never been there, never been to war, never mm. been to I thought, how the hell would they know what I've been through? They wouldn't know. They would have no clue. Man, I was so wrong. Mm. Um, and that helped tremendously. Like I said, um, I haven't mentioned anything about this, and now, like, and now everyone's going to know, which is fine. Um, but it helped. Yeah. And, 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 and 
I needed to get that done. I had yeah. done it sooner, years earlier, it would have helped so much more. But it's that slow um, going backwards. It's it's going, you know, to a stage where you realize, shit, you know, the stuff I say, the stuff I do, it's not just affecting my wife, but my kids. You know, mm-hmm. I've got three kids. It's, you know, you see the, the, the negative result in them. You know, the slow, small negative result. And you think, well, shit, you know, I need to, to change. I need to change my way. I need to improve. I need to mm-hmm. be better. Be more, as I've you know, obviously written about, you know, and and that's why I thought, hey, I need to go and take up this offer, go for therapy, do these lessons, um, and then improve. And it's still, you know, in progress. I still um, need to change in, in so many other ways, you know. So it's, it's baby steps forward. I mean, we're all on canvas that needs to change, and you know, you, Tony. One of the things that Tony Harris said, you know, he he was like. You could talk to your mates. You could. He would. He, one of his advice was, you can talk to your mates for so much, but at the end of the day, you could talk to me. But I'm just a stupid infant here. I'm not going to know how really how you progress or move, you change. And that's where the professional help can. Yeah. You know, they can. I can listen to your stories, but I don't know how to make that change of mentality. Whereas the professional yeah. people is, you know. So his advice, and I would say again, is, it's, it's not a bad thing you say and. You've, you've got help and therapy. I think that's one thing that a lot of people, it needs to be a less less of a stigma thing because um, the professionals know how to deal with it. We just we just know what you've been through. You know, we just know what, you, we, what each other's been through, but we don't know, you know, because you could talk to your mate and they'd be like, oh yeah, I went through the same thing. However, he's probably still in that position where he doesn't know how to progress and move forward. Yeah. And then you're both there can tell him war stories and yet not knowing how to kind of, move forward yeah exactly man exactly and that's it's all about moving forward it's all about taking that step and and just being there for each other and helping um it 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 it, it definitely helps you know that initial even if it's a text or phone call but then again it's it's up to that individual to to do something you know about yeah. it you know? because um like i say seeing you know um the things you say and things you do how it affect you know the people around yeah, you know. yeah that, that just broke me and it, and like i say it's not something that happened overnight it's something mm-hmm. that happened over and and it came to a point where i didn't realize that i've turned into this person you know and i mm-hmm. need to do something about it you know but it's a combination of doing different things that's going to help you know and it's an ongoing process you know you have to keep working at it yeah and yeah and you said um you said saying was the kind of the the, the the catalyst for for all this, and that, and how was how was saying it like where were, where were you in saying were you in DC? Saying in DC, yeah, yeah. Sang so in the, DC. yeah. The, the infancy of of the, of the which later became when I was there it was Fob Jackson, yeah. Um, but, but how was how was the whole singing experience? Were you so you were there two thousand and seven? Yeah, it was just for you. I'm guessing it was just a lot of getting contacted a lot. And what can you, can you just talk to me how how it was and what was your experiences there? I think flying into Bastia and getting there, it was a it was different. We, we all knew that this is going to be full on. This is this is not Iraq. This is not Basra. It's 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 different, you know. And the the other people you bump into, the other 
and a, um, to challenge the other soldiers. And I think it was the Marines that we took over from, and they took over from the the Paris. So I think it was the Paris that they they helped with the construction of um, the uh, Hesco Bastion walls around Sangen, and you know make it uh, because it was an old farm building. I think it was you know DC that they just made into this big. Eventually, it's into this big fob, you know. But um, even when we um, went there, the first couple of weeks, it was yes, yeah, filling in sandbags, making it more stronger and all that, you know. But yeah, flying into into Sangen that night because it was uh, we got split up into two different chalks. The first chalk went, I think, um, I can't even remember if it was day or night time, but they left, and um, I was on the second chalk to fly in on on these two chinooks. And it got postponed because two lads got killed in one of the singers. And again, straight that was um, that was a massive eye opener, you know, knowing mm-hmm. that it's it's going to be different. You know, it's not mm-hmm. going to be uh, in the park. It's not going to be yeah, uh, I've gone to patrol, I've gone to down to Pizza Hut. You know, it's it's not going to be that. Um, and flying in on on those Chinooks, it was you know I was I was shitting myself. I was thinking shit. It's it's you know they're going to shut us down. Um, you know, all these negative thoughts. Um, would then kick in, but then you realize, hang on, you're not the only one, man. You know, there's other people, other blokes. Well, we're all in this together. Um, yeah, but it was that night, and then it was definitely a noisy landing, you know, um, and yeah, landing itself, get off the uh, the back of the tailgate, you know, rather rapidly because the other uh, Marines that want to, you know, that's there waiting for you, they want to get on, and you've got like under 30, 40 seconds to yeah. get off. Um, but there was that once we got in into the main building itself, unbeknownst to to us, um, they called in airstrikes, air support, you know, to drop a few 500 pounder bombs, you know. And I was sitting down there, and I remember Dickie, Dickie sitting opposite me. He's already, you know, been there a couple of days, and then he would then call out to us, you know, um, I know 15 seconds or 20 seconds, you know, and we had no idea. And when those bombs dropped, uh, I think that feeling will stay with me, man. We had no mm. idea. You know? You know, they were there for a while. They were calm. They were fun. They were cracking jokes. They were having a few cigarettes there, you know. Um, but for us, you know, being all fresh-faced, you know, no idea what's going to take place, you know. And the building bloody shook, you know, this bomb dropping. And it was um, it was more like a, yep, welcome to saying that, you know. No, no, you know, let's, uh, let's crack on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was oh. tough. In the first 20 days, it was, oh, yeah, horrendous. Was it just just um were you were you out on the ground much at all or was it just you were in in the in the DC and just trying to get contacted? Yeah, just saying DC back um basically defending the compound, you know, because we got contacted so many times we we couldn't go out on any patrols, you know. So it was the first twenty days in contact. Um, shit, I think it was about a total of I don't think seventy eight or seventy nine contacts, you know, small arms fire all directions. Snipers, um, small arms fire, mortar rounds, um, RPGs, loads of them. Um, a lot of them very accurate. Um, a lot of them, I think it was at that stage where they had those Pakistani, I think it's Pakistani mortar teams, you know, they, they had them there as well, you know, and they were known to be accurate as well. Um, but it was it was up until after that, then it was a bit of a lull um, that we could actually leave and then go on patrols. Um, but, well, I think. I'm not sure if it was the Royal Marines with, um, with the Viking vehicles. They had this big op, I think, much later on that went down. And there was the American Airborne Division um, came in as well. But that was much later during that sort of time. But then when we eventually got out to do patrols, um, 
yeah, just trying to throw those massive craters in what was left of Sangen. It was a, it was a sight to be seen, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was there two years later in 2009, and by, by the time we were there, it was Sangen itself as, I guess, a, a, a town which was operating, and people were cutting around, and it was, oh, yeah. it was just, you know, I, I guess where you were in Jackson, you had the the metal road, but we were a bit further south in Nole, which was, um, I don't know if you, anyway, there was these mansions on top of the hill by a, by a wadi, uh, the oh, yeah. Shakakan wadi, and it was all just dirt road. The, f the fact that it was two years later, it was, I guess, even speaking to, you know, other people that have been there, Hugh, he was there, um, it was just a different, different time two years later than it was when you were there. Yeah, because with with, with you, there were all these bloody ideas everywhere, and um, yeah, it was a total difference. Remember, because for us, it was more, um, yeah, small arms, a lot of RPGs, a mm. lot of mortars, you know. But then again, when we managed to get it on, onto patrols itself, it was, it was not what. What you guys went through at all, you know, it was it was funny, you know, the, the massive change in yeah. in their um, operations and, and how they conducted their business, the the old Taliban, you know. Yeah, and when you when you first deployed to Iraq, you you said you were expecting war, um, and then when you got to when you got to Iraq, it was it was a little bit different to what you thought. However, yeah. Afghan was kind of everything you expected it to be. How do you do? Do you feel? Did you feel like kind of pleased with it at the time, or did you kind of feel a little bit like, oh fuck, maybe I've gone in over my head it, and I've wished too much? Because I remember being, I, I remember being in training, and there was a my, one of the one of the full screws was like, because I remember finishing training, because I, I almost my hearing was that shit in training. I almost got like failed training because of my hearing, and I remember. I cried. I was like, I'm like, I was devastated because I was like, I've just done all this training, and I'm not even. I'm gonna get kicked out of the army anyway. The the old the it was a it was a major. It was a it was a LE major, and he was like, don't worry, fuse uh, in HP, we'll we'll pass you. And I was like, okay. So then I passed my test. He sent me yeah. away, and then I was I remember getting back to the lines and going, yes, yes, I'm excited. I'm going to Afghan. I'm going because obviously as far as we we were told we were deploying as soon as we got to battalion and then the corp he gave me the fucking proper proper death day he looked at me i think his name was corporal frisbee or something he looked at me with a fucking thousand yard stare he was like never fucking wish for it and then you know so that was how was was that kind of your mentality did you did you were you happy that it was everything you wished for or did you kind of go oh fuck this is um it's a bit much i would say that is everything uh, that I think I, I wish for, and I thought that I would get when I joined the army. You know, um, yeah, that's why I joined. I mean, initially I wanted to, to to go and follow my old man's footsteps, and you know, become a police officer and follow that dream. That dream sort of died, and I think I made peace with it over the years. Mm. Um, but yeah, saying that, that was the highlight of my army career. You know, um, yeah, good times, bad times. It was. Um, it was the reason that I think I joined the army, yeah. um, to to be part of that unique sort of team environment, you know. But yeah, with that with that comes a massive threat, you know. But 
Yeah, it was. It was a. I would say it was definitely the highlight of my of my army career to be yeah. to be part of that. Part yeah, of I mean, I mean, I've always said the same thing as well. It's if if we if we when I was there, if we hadn't have lost lads, it just would have been the best time. Obviously, there's shit times and fucking you mate. I don't remember. <laughs> We had we had goat one night for some reason. We, we we bought goat from the locals, I think, and uh, had a goat meal. And I had mate, I had DMV from it, and it was honestly the fucking it was horrible. I remember running <laughs> running out, mate, and I was just I went to went to be sick, and as I was sick, I was sick out my ass as well at the same time, and then I was I crawled all the way over to the DMV tent, and I was like. Oh, it was it was fucking horrible, and I was in I think I was in a hot DMV tent for three days. Lovely. It was it was not good. And then you know you're going on patrols for fucking fourteen hours, but then it's just the the time the camaraderie you have with the lads that just yeah. kind of and you're all going through that same experience. It just make it like the, the what you join for. Exactly, yeah. Because I mean, I always want. I thought. Um, you know, that's why I want to go. I want to be on the front line. I want to be out there with, you know, the big machine guns and, and you know, and closing with the, the enemy and, and be part of that, you know. Um, and and it happens. And I, I guess I'm, I'm grateful that I'm I'm here today and I've been through that. But I think I, I mentioned it to someone longer that, you know, that sort of that time in my life, it doesn't define me. It's over the years, you know, I've done other stuff and I, I'm now doing something totally different. <laughs> Um, mm. And I think it's good to, to even now again look back and be proud of you know what I've achieved and what I've been, and but I shouldn't just totally let that define me, you know. But mm. that was definitely the highlight of my army career, the fact that I've been you know through that with a, a great bunch of lads, you know, and just sadly some of them not around anymore, you know. Um, but yeah, the highlight of of um, and, and the reason that, that I that I joined, you know. Mm. Yeah, and when when you um, how how long were you guys in Sangin for? Was it a six month or was? It... Um, I think it was four months. Four months. Four months it was, yeah. yeah. And then you um, you went back to battalion, and I think that was that was like the end of the TRB for us for the battalion, wasn't it? Yeah, when I think it was. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was at that stage where um. They started to get ready to to go to Hanslow. I think it was in yeah. 2008. Yeah. But how how did you how did you find how did you find coming back from that tour compared to your Iraq tours? Did you feel um, did you was it different? Did you find yourself being in a different mental like mental space? It was a bit different, but I I don't think I felt it too much later. It was it was it was until a few months later that I felt it a bit. A bit different with uh, with things, you know. Um, but after that, I just wanted to, to get back home. Uh, but again, we, we we flew to to Cyprus. We were there for a while, which was again surreal. It was different, you know. Coming back um, again, um, a lot of us um, were staying in the barracks. We were single. It was great for for the married ones because they could see the family, you know, and the, yeah. and the wives and, and and the kids and all that. But for us, getting into, back into into battalion. On the on the on the coaches, um, it was yeah, it was a 
it was different, you know. Um, it was fine then, but it wasn't until a few months later that I felt like something ain't right, you know. Um, um, I wasn't sure what it was, if it was depression or what it was, but I just felt like I'm not myself, and I'm pretty sure that everyone else around me could actually see it and spot it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it got fine, and then I did my, I went and I did recruiting um, in, in Woolwich for for the two years, you know, but um, I, I was fine then, but yeah, I, initially after that time that we got back, I think it was a couple of months, um, yeah, I, I wasn't really myself, you know, I, I, not sure what it was, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but I was mm-hmm. definitely all. You know. And do you, did you, you went and did recruiting for two years, did you know at that time you wanted to get out or was it during the recruiting when you stepped away from the battalion life that you kind of thought I'm, I'm done with the army I think it was at that stage where I was just about to join the recruiting team that I knew uh, eventually you know I would want to you know move on to something else you know because um, things were changing people changed I, I think I changed uh, things were changing within the battalion and um, it was I think deep down I knew uh, it was it was time for me to to move on um, I would be able to, you know, have the time to sit on and I think um, what I could do, you know, and it was up until later in that sort of second year with the recruiting team that, um, you know, Sally said to me, listen, you know, I'm going to, you know, do a, a CEP course, you know, come and join me, there's an open day. Um, I was a bit hesitant, I thought, oh, it's, it's not for me, you know, all these, you know, such blokes with the um, CEP courses, I wasn't sure, again, that's all down to just purely um, you know, self-confidence, you know, mm-hmm. he could see it, I mean, he could see it back, Nip, yeah, you can go away, you can do it, we can do it together, I'm, I'm doing it, you know, and, but deep down, um, it was just pure self-confidence, thinking, oh, shit, I don't think I could do this, you know, and, but I did it, you know, and I enjoyed it, you know, um, but yeah, within that two years with the um, recruiting team um, in Woolwich, I knew, yeah, it was time to move on, you know, because um, deep down, I wasn't really happy, yeah. it was time to move on, you know. Yeah, and and then you moved, you moved on to do CP, which kind of, I guess, you, you're in a hostile environment. So you went back to Iraq. Yeah, yeah, I went back. <laughs> yeah, I went back so, there. But it was it was less bullshit, you know. And yeah. it, it, um, it was again, there was a sense of purpose. It was it was for the team. It was in routine. It was things that um I knew, um, and the money was fantastic as well, you know. Yeah, with all that great money comes a massive risk, you know. That there's people actively um trying to to kill you alongside the other you know um american forces you know um but for whatever reason i loved it it was great you know it was high tempo at times you know there was a lot of responsibility um, mm-hmm. that they uh, expect from you you know with their with, with the patrols um taking the climb because it was different within the army you would you were you were taught and trained to take the fight to the enemy you know to, mm-hmm. to close in capture or kill now, regardless of whether season or or, or or where you are, if it if it's in a desert or jungle, you know, with with CP it was just the opposite. You know, you were trying to get the client away from yeah. from his way, get away. You know, you go the opposite direction. You know, you need to get the client within a safe area. You know, mm-hmm. you're on foot or in vehicle, and you train in that. You know, in in the teams that we had, and that I, I was part of initially, um, great great people. You know. Again, all all ex um, ex army from different regiments, different battalions, you know. And yeah. um, instantly, I loved it. You know, it's 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 odd. It's it's actually ironic the fact that I felt within recruiting in Voyage, yeah, I want to get out. I don't know, if, 
all this bullshit. Things were changing. Um, I changed. I wanted to go and do something different, and then I end up doing CP back in Iraq of all places, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, ironic, but I loved it, you know. And yeah, yeah. I did that thinking about two and a half years um, with two different companies, different contracts. Um, I loved it. And then, yeah, if I, I think if I stayed single, um, I would you know, be out there. And I, I would have done more than just two mm-hmm. years, a lot more than just two years. Yeah, but then you, you moved, you you now live in New Zealand. Did yeah, you yeah. move over New Zealand during, so you're a South African who moved to England to join the army and now lives in New Zealand. I bet your parents yes. are just fucking come home, mate. Yeah, yeah, and I'm trying <laughs> to get them over to get this way. But my old yeah. man, he's stubborn. He wants to stay there, <laughs> or so it seems. Um, yeah, it's just not that easy or not that yeah. straightforward. You know? yeah. um, because when I joined the army and then I end up leaving, oh, in, before I left, um, when I applied for my British passport, I did it all by myself. Mm-hmm. I paid all the fees. Um, no one helped me in battalion. There was no one wanted to ask. That's crazy. That's uh, crazy. And I struggled, man, because they, they wanted me to do this bloody um, life test or English life test. And they want you to go and buy this book. And then every time you do the test, you have to pay. And I failed the test, not once, but twice. Hey. Silly mistakes, silly things, you know. Um, and then every time when you do the silly test, you have to pay, you know, and all in all, I think I paid close to probably almost 2,000 pounds for everything. The initial um, application forms, doing the tests and everything, and I got that, and then ended up bloody, you know, moving to New Zealand. You know? But it was in, in Hounslow, we were there in 2008, that I met my, my now wife, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, things got serious, and um, so we decided that I could call um, yeah, well, no, she decided that um, at the time that she's going to come back home to, to New Zealand. And then, yeah, I left, I started the CP, and every time I'd leave, the company would then, obviously, as, as per normal, would then fly the operators out to wherever you live in the world, you know. And yeah. yes, so, paid. so every time mm-hmm. I had my, my time off, and the contract basically or typically was a nine weeks on or three weeks off, and every time I had three weeks off, you know, come back to New Zealand. Um, Raised in Chile, and then uh, fly back out. Um, I mean, and you're, la- you're laughing with your decision now, with how how yeah. everything's going on with COVID. You're yeah, like I said, I'm not complaining. I'm not yeah. complaining. We've, we've we've got it easy. We're lucky in regards to you know um, to what uh, what's going down in the rest of the world. I mean, one of the shortfalls I think the the British military has is the fact that you were talking about when you're applying for your your citizenship it was it was a hard thing for you make your they, they they've done it with they do it with the south africans they do it with the fijians they do it with the gurkhas it's it's in my opinion and i know the opinion of many other people who've served with these soldiers you know like yourself it shouldn't you guys have served the british the british army what like how it's a hard process for you to get your citizenship is it is ridiculous it was difficult because i knew because at the time when I initially um, joined the with the battalion, you know, or or the army itself, and then they would stamp your passport, and then you become exempt from the Immigration Act. So it doesn't matter where you go within the world. Every time you enter Heathrow Airport or uh, or Gatwick, you show your 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 South African passport at the time with your army ID, 
and they let you through. But I knew as soon as I left the army, then that mm. um, visa would be, you know, would, would expire. Mm. So, and but initially they said that those three years that I stayed within the UK, it didn't count because you had to be within the UK five years to to qualify for for that um, passport or citizenship, you know. And I thought, heck, uh, yeah, I know it was a working holiday visa, but, you know, I was in the country from 2000 up until 2003 when I joined the army, you know, mm. and, and they said initially that those three years don't count, you know. That was, that, that was heartbreaking, you know, and yeah. um, said i just done everything by myself. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult and a lot of money as well, you know. Um, the fact that they haven't got that in in, in in place, and I heard these stories of, and I've seen them in reports of various other, other blokes that struggle with that, you know. Um, and it was also at the time it was in, I think in Cyprus when I heard that um, apparently the South African government uh, brought in this new law that made it illegal for South Africans um, to that served in the British Army because we got them classed as mercenaries, you know. But I think mm. that was. That was there for a short while, you know, and then that sort of, you know, fell away. But yeah, it was a, it was a interesting, bizarre time, to say the least. Mm. And then anyway, you moved to New Zealand and it kind of yeah, crazy. You know, crazy, <laughs> right? Crazy. Um, yeah, so I've got a South African passport. I've got a British passport and I'm now obviously legally living in New Zealand, you know, with my amazing wife and three kids. And you, you, you briefly talked about the the poem, the the books that you did, the veteran collection. Yeah. So what um what are so is there any other as well as them? Is there any other things like organisations that that have helped you along the way to cope with things or any charities? Um, I would say the only sort of um organisation that has um just helped me. I think there was the the Dead Reckoning Collective, they're the, these two American veterans, um, they've got their own company where they publish uh, books written by veterans. They've, they've helped a lot in, in mm -hmm. the sense of work out there and helped me with, think, with my process of um, getting through all of this, this weird, um, bizarre time, you know. Um, definitely helped. And obviously with the Veteran Collective, those two volumes that was done by another British uh, veteran. Um, but that's a, a, a book done by um, various other veterans with a contributed work of mm -hmm. the white. That, that's, that's definitely sort of, you know, those um, work that sort of stand out for me. Yeah, so what I'll do is in, in, in the description, I'll whack links to them. Um, yeah, mate, um, it's been great talking to you, buddy. I really, really okay. enjoyed it. Really getting, getting your side of things, and you know, hearing someone from another country come over and crack on and get rid of, you know, through the British Army. Is there any, uh, is there, is there any advice you'd like to give anyone who's, you know, you, you said yourself you're in dark times, and you know, talking to someone helped you. Is, is there any advice like that that you would like to, you could give to someone? I would say just take that step. It, it doesn't matter if it's a, a, a a small step, but you, you got to make that conscious decision that, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get help, um, get professional help, or start with just answering that text, answering that that the call, you know, from your mate that's trying to get hold of you. Um, open up, talk, um, get help, 
Um, don't bottle things up. Don't ever think that all the answers is done in that in that bottle. Um, drink ain't, ain't gonna help. Um, reach out, definitely reach out. Um, the help is, is there. There's all these different organisations and people that 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 could help. It, it doesn't matter if you're in New Zealand, Australia, um, in South Africa, or back in in the UK. Uh, you know, it's it's there. But you gotta make that step. You gotta take that step and and reach out, and then um, keep on, you know, with uh, with these sessions or um, uh, yeah, just reach out. Yeah. Alright, yeah. well, well, thanks for stopping by on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Cheers, Thank buddy. you so much. And there it was. Um, thanks again to Neville for coming on and sharing his experiences and you know as he said before he, he actually opened up about something that he's not told many people so i really appreciate him coming on and hopefully that encourages other people to to seek help and you know ad- admit when things aren't tough because we all have dark times and you know that just encapsulates what i want to achieve with this podcast is just encouraging people to to open up about things and follow advice that so many people for us have given that yes it's good to talk to people you know your muckers and your your fellow colleagues but also it is it is worthwhile getting the professional help um what i'll do is i'll put all the links below to the the poetry books that neville's a part of sorry the vectoring collective and the dead reckoning collective and i'll also share the link to his instagram because give it give it a give him a follow because he shares quite a lot of his his poetry directly on there and they also come you know he, he shares some pretty cool pictures alongside with it i've actually got another podcast lined up next week with a another equally amazing guest so i hope you can tune in for that as always you can reach me uh, on instagram and facebook at the real podcast or via email at the real podcast at gmail.com until next time lay low move fast and stay safe and i'll see you then